This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. I want to take a moment to say I hope you are safe and healthy. Thank you for tuning in to this hour of togetherness, where we discuss what unites rather than divides us. Coming up, an interview with Margot Livesey, author of The Boy in the Field. My first response to um, the pandemic was to sit down and start writing something new. I realized I, I couldn't be alone at this moment. We'll be back with Margot Livesey in just a bit. First, I want to say to you, thank you for listening. For the last seven years, I've been producing at least 40 episodes a year of First Draft. It's a labor of love, but there is also labor involved, time and effort and thought. Whether this is your first listening experience or you are on your 300th episode, I am asking you with humbleness and appreciation if you would consider supporting First Draft as a donating member. You can learn more and donate at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash firstdraftwriters. Your support helps keep conversations like the one you are about to hear going. As our society is changing to independent folks like me producing rich and meaningful content, like that on First Draft, we are simultaneously expanding the diversity of voices available for the public. This effort takes money, time, equipment, and a lot of heart and sweat to come to fruition each week. I know there is so much free content out there. In fact, what you are about to listen to is free, but it is not without expense to make. As a thank you for joining the First Draft community, I offer my patrons a lot of extras, the best being ad-free and pitch-free episodes. As a thank you for your patronage, I get you to the interview faster because you'll get your own dedicated feed without this ask. No please, no ads. Also, starting at just $6 a month, you will receive extras from the shows, including cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final episode, writing tips from featured authors, books, and a monthly newsletter. I am also very grateful. I often send extra goodies to my patrons. Please beat the odds of having to listen to this pitch seven times before you join the First Draft community. Go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. You can donate any amount, and you know it will go to the continuation of these conversations focused on literary craft, content, and practice. I know that it's unlikely you are in front of a computer right now, so I'd like to suggest adding a little reminder for yourself for when you get home to contribute to First Draft. Maybe make a note on your phone, an ink mark on your hand, scribble on a piece of paper, something along the lines of, First Draft, Reminder, Membership Matters. Again, patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Please stay tuned at the end of this show. I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell your friends to subscribe. Thank you so much. My guest today is Margot Livesey, New York Times bestselling author of nine novels, including House on Fortune Street, The Missing World, Homework, Mercury, and Criminals, among others. She also wrote The Hidden Machinery, Essays on Writing. Her work has appeared in Vogue, The New Yorker, and The Atlantic. Livesey was born in Scotland. She teaches at the Iowa Writers' Workshop and lives in Boston. 
Her latest book is called The Boy in the Field and tells a story that takes place just before the millennium. In the fall of 1999, three siblings, Matthew, Zoe, and Duncan, find an injured boy in a rural field who was the victim of a violent attack. The random discovery of the boy incites all three children and their parents to both question their life paths and reckon with choices they've already made. The novel is told in alternating points of view, but begins and ends with omniscient chapters. We began the discussion with Margot Livesey sharing the impetus for the novel. Part of the impetus for it was after many years, several decades, I um, re-encountered an old school friend. Um, Friend is perhaps an exaggeration, an acquaintance, and he was telling me something Um, I had never heard before, namely that one uh, lovely summer afternoon, he had come home to his house in a very small village and at the bottom of the garden had found the body of a young woman who had been murdered. And he described how her legs were red with blood and he thought at first she was wearing red socks or red stockings. And that moment he was 16, completely changed his life. He had previously been planning to study medicine and instead he became an accountant and um, moved from Scotland to America. And uh, I was very struck by, by that description and it made me think about the fault lines, if you will, that many people have in their lives, moments when their lives jump from one track to another, <laughs> like a, maybe like a train jumping at the points. That's so interesting that he was going to be a doctor and then became an accountant. It's a very deep switch. That, that was what struck me, that um, he had had this very different, um, very different ambition. But he said, you know, his reaction to the young woman made him feel that he just, it was so shattering that he just couldn't be in a situation where there would be many such moments. So you probably hear a lot of stories of, of real life. What, what makes a certain story elevate to the point where you want to spend potentially years with it exploring the ideas in a book? I don't really know precisely. Um, when, the, when, the, when this man, I'll call him Mark, told me this story, there was something about his, partly I could picture the scene, I knew the village in Scotland he was talking about, and his um, the level of feeling that came through his voice that made it stick in my mind. And I think when I'm starting a novel, I'm always looking for that place where my private interests intersect with public interests. And I was interested in how I could use the the trope, if you will, of finding a body as a way to explore something about my characters. You know, many, many detective stories or mysteries begin with a body. But so I wanted to take that, but take it in a very different direction. What was the question? Was there one certain question or few that kind of nagged at you that you wanted to explore? I wanted to 
write or think once again about um, issues of family and DNA. I had for really my entire life um, thought of myself as belonging to a very small family. I was the only child of two only children. And around the time that I re-encountered the old school friend, I also discovered that I um, did have relatives. In fact, I had many relatives, and they all happened to be in Australia. And I finally went to meet them. And so some of the novel's preoccupations about what what does it mean to be connected through D DNA and blood um, as opposed to through affection and um, empathy are things that I was exploring at that time. So in The Boy in the Field, you have these three siblings who, who find the boy. So the siblings are Zoe, Duncan, and Matthew. And Matthew is the oldest. And he he's kind of in the midst of this burgeoning love. Um, he has a girlfriend at school named Rachel and a best friend, Benjamin. And he's kind of experiencing those first bodily delights in his life. And Zoe is 16. And she kind of has this like maybe preternatural ability or some kind of energetic ability to kind of leave her body for a little bit. So sometimes she leaves her bodies and, and looks down on the scene she's having. Um, but it's not like surreal. It's just like these, these moments in her life. And she's also kind of coming of age and she courts danger a lot. Then there's Duncan, who's the youngest, who is adopted from Turkey and he looks different from his family, and he's very, very sensitive. And so these are the three kids that find Carell, who is the injured boy in the field. Can you talk about creating kind of the profiles of these characters? Thank you, Mitzi. You phrased this question so eloquently. I knew from the start that I wanted there to be three three siblings that I wanted to refract the story in three different directions, partly because I'm I'm interested as a as a bystander, if you will, in how different how differently uh, people in a family experience that family that no two siblings ever experience exactly the same event, the same holiday, the same dinner. And I wanted to find a way to write about that, the, the ongoing tension, if you will, between being part of a family and struggling to become an individual, struggling to be yourself. And I wanted each of the siblings to have a quest, if you will, to have something they were searching for. And in Matthew, the the oldest case, I I wanted thought that, that he could be a wonderful surrogate for the detective that we find in so many novels when there's a, when there's a body at the start, and there is also a proper detective in the in the novel um, who who plays a, a a useful role. And in Zoe's case, I was very interested in in that idea of how she's how she's sort of changing shape, you know, she's at that 
porous stage when she's suddenly discovering that people might look at her, might notice her in a different kind of way. And she's looking for someone who will really see her. And, you know, she has a number of unfortunate encounters with men before she finds someone whom she thinks sees her. And in the case of Duncan, the the youngest of the siblings, I really wanted to write about how an artist begins to find their way in the world. What what makes this strange species of person who will settle for so much delayed gratification, who will spend hours and days working on something that may be completely useless. And I, I wanted to combine that, that searching on his part with his sudden feeling that he, he needs to find his birth mother whom he refers to as his first mother, that suddenly he can't ignore the fact that he is different from his siblings. Do you think you found an answer, maybe not universally, maybe universally, or at least for Duncan, about that question about art and how you become an artist? I'm not sure. I, I mean, I read so many things of theories about why people why people become artists. Um, the writer Judith Grossman, who used to teach at the Warren Wilson College Low Residency Program, thought that every writer was someone who had had some failed mes- moment of communication, some profound failed moment of communication as a child, that you had tried to tell someone something and your words hadn't reached them. And so you had turned to this much more difficult, but perhaps also finally more successful means of communicating, namely writing. And I was always struck by that. But then I thought, but actually, probably every child tries to tell someone something and they don't understand. Um, So, yeah, I'm not sure. What do you think? I think sometimes art has to do with being seen and I don't mean for attention but I mean that sometimes there's so much swirling inside of you and there's such a gap between articulation and feeling like you got those feelings out so I could see as a painter but even as a writer because even though writers use words you're not using the words you're telling stories about something you know maybe nonfiction comes closest to that but you're, you're telling stories that substitute for something else but I think there it is some sort of probably emotional shower of, of doing that yeah no I, I I think that's a very good way of putting it um we want to be seen in some deeper way and um, and that's particularly an interesting way to put it for a visual artist because you would think that the visual artist is is doing the seeing but what, what they're trying to do is actually show you that seeing if that makes sense <laughs> um, so Duncan is it might Duncan might 
painter painter character is trying to sort of trying to show people what he sees when he's when he's painting. I mean, do you feel any of that? I mean, in terms of not not necessarily being seen, but that you have all these things inside of you that you just have to get out or you might catch on fire. You know, I do have that kind of feeling, and um, almost my first response to um, the pandemic was to sit down and start writing something new. I realized I I couldn't be alone at this moment, that I had to have the companionship that writing offers me, and a place to, to put my feelings and a place to go every day. So... I've, ever since um, March, I've been writing what I think of as a COVID-19 novel, which has absolutely nothing to do with COVID. It's interesting, though, because as you discussed, you know, Duncan, his quest to be an artist and, and what that means. I think that the other two siblings had similar questions. Like Matthew really took to the detective, Hugh Price, and would go to him on his own at certain points to to just ask him questions. And he was asking him questions about the crime and, and evidence. He was also asking him because Duncan was adopted and wanted to find his first mother about how he might help him do that. But I felt like underneath that all, he was really going to the detective, like almost as if the detective was some guru or someone who could answer the questions underneath those, which was really like, why do bad things happen? And how do we solve the mysteries of our own lives? You're completely right, Mitzi, that Matthew does think of the detective in, in The Boy in the Field as as a kind of guru, as, as someone who can help him sort out this really bewildering thing that evil exists in the world. And as you say, bad things happen. And I don't have children, but being with the, the, the children of my friends, I'm, I'm struck by how reassuringly we often lay out the world for children you know if the if you tell the truth everything will be all right if you say you're sorry it'll make things better um that there's right and wrong and and that that good will triumph and i think when we hit adolescence we suddenly look around us and think wait a minute, that's actually not what's happening. Um, there's lots of bad things happening and nobody's being punished and lots of good people are not being rewarded. And I think for Zoe, who also has kind of questions about her own agency, I think a little bit, as as she's 16 and coming of age, and she has been warned by her mother, who's in a lawyer, that men could touch you in wrong places and to beware and to always be alert. And she starts kind of courting that after Corel is found in the field. She she kind of follows men around town and she ends up finding a man by by doing that. But she also is courting danger in a certain way and, and testing her limits. Yeah, exactly. I mean, like Matthew, 
when she sees the boy in the field, she realizes that the rules she thought existed have been broken. And she's had signs of that before. I mean, someone exposes himself to her, and for instance. Um, and she, her response is different than Matthew. She's interested in, in exploring breaking the rules in in a different way and um, she understands that something is going on between men and women um, and I think uh, you know too I was partly uh, flirting if you will with the idea that perhaps at first she thought that Carol was injured in some sort of sexual incident, um, that it was to, to, to the dark side of sex that she was seeing when she saw his body lying there. So it, it propels her into just looking at looking at men, as you say, much more closely and, and courting this kind of danger in a way that is actually quite scary, even though nothing terrible happens to her. You know, all the kids influence each other in the family with with different things they do, and they they are um, they do have a, a nice bond as as a group. And one of the things that Zoe tries to do, one of the ways she's influenced, is she says to 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 her siblings, and she's thinking about this crime. Like, why can we just try for one day not to lie? Can you? Can we all just try? to say the absolute truth. And she has, there's a line um, where she is talking to her friend Mo- Moira. Is that how you say it? Moira. 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 Yes. Um, and she, I think she said like her dress looked nice, but it really didn't. And, and you have a line that says, how can you call yourselves friends if you can't tell each other the truth? So she kind of made a pact with her siblings. Let's not lie for a day. I don't think they even made it through the whole day because you realize how many little lies you say that if you don't say them can wreak havoc. Uh, Yes, and I think that is something I remember trying as a child. Um, We, uh, growing up in Scotland, um, although we weren't particularly religious, we were always encouraged to give up something for the 40 days of Lent. And I remember one year, um, I and um, my adopted family, we decided we'd give up lying. And we got through about half a day before we decided to give up chocolate instead, because it was so much easier. And um, I, but I remember also finding that really bewildering that you couldn't tell the truth that there were so many occasions. And in fact, I still do find it bewildering. Yeah, it's interesting because we don't, I mean, we think we want the truth, but we really don't. And people who are really blunt and generally just say what's on their mind tend to turn a lot of people off. Absolutely, and uh, you know, particularly in in Britain, you know, people often often sort of rely on subtext much more than text to convey information. Um, you know, if someone's coughing at the theatre, you don't ask them to maybe stop coughing. You offer them a cough sweet, say, or um, or offer to get them a glass of water. 
Is that something that you think about when you write a lot? I mean, basically, you're talking about subtext. I do think a lot about subtext. And I, I mean, I think that really what we don't say to each other is almost as important as what we do say in, in many conversations. And I think when I'm, when I'm writing, I'm always trying to think, well, what's going on? beneath the surface of the conversation what what are the characters not saying to each other what would they like to say and i don't mean my characters never break through and tell the truth and duncan in particular is is a fairly truthful person um, but still i think there are often ways in which we can't say the things we'd most like to say and maybe that too explains why we feel privileged as writers because we get a we get another chance to say those things is your experience of of injecting that subtext something that takes more thought and comes maybe in the editing process or are you the type of writer where you're writing and you're generating you can kind of combine that I write terrible first drafts there they're poorly written at every level and they're usually very baggy um, with lots of people saying, hello, how are you today? Would you like a cup of tea? Yes, please. Two sugars, you know, that kind of thing. And um, so it takes me a while to to compress my conversations and to think, why am I, why am I showing this moment? Why am I putting it in dialogue rather than, rather than uh, telling it, which is a more efficient way to convey information? And I, you know, in general, I suppose I think I try to make it the case that if something's in dialogue, it's because the dialogue is not just showing the reader, but also telling the reader something that, but, but not just, sorry, not just showing the reader, but showing the reader something that couldn't be told. Is, um, was there your first draft of this in alternating points of view? Because that's how you tell the story from the points of view of the kids. First draft, I tried to use the omniscient, the more omniscient point of view that I use in the opening pages, and that I found it didn't work very well for the story I wanted to tell, or at least I wasn't able to make it work very well because I did feel that it was so important that Matthew, Zoe and Duncan each had their own very singular point of view. And so it seemed only right that the novel should be organized in that way. Um, but one, but I did have many um, part sections that I put in the novel that I didn't end up using. I had a whole subplot where Zoe started working at the hospital and inadvertently encountered Carol and all of, all of that. I was going to ask you a little bit about that because I love reading the acknowledgments. And at the end, one of your the last things you wrote was to Andrea Barrett. And you said something about how she kept you from wrong turns. And I was wondering about those wrong turns. Well, unfortunately, in an ideal 
ideal world, Andrea would be sitting in my writing room every day <laughs> saying, no, no, don't write that, Margot. Um, but of course, the actuality is that I write things and send them to her. And she says, no, 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 this isn't this isn't where you want to go. Um, she is uh, my first reader and a wonderful first reader. And very often, you know, she will say, "Well, what, 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 what are you trying? What are you trying to do here? And is is this really what the novel needs?" Um, she's very good at thinking about the overall structure of a novel, which often, as I'm in the thick of writing it, I find quite hard to see. One of the things you mentioned earlier um, that did fascinate you was DNA. And I'm wondering if you have anything more you want to say about that. I mean, it sounds like when you were growing up, you had your family and you had this adopted family and then you have an adopted character. Um, But sometimes we share DNA and we're not exactly like the people whose DNA we share. And and you went to Australia and met your family. So I was just curious about that idea. Well, after my father died, I I was 22 when he died, I realized that as far as I knew, there was no one on the planet with whom I in any meaningful way shared DNA. And um, I lived in that state for um, 40 years. And then I discovered to my amazement these people to whom I was related. So when I went to Australia, I was really, I I only went for five days, I was really testing the idea all the time. I was thinking, do I feel something for you because of DNA? Um, Do I look like you because of DNA? Of course, it was actually a fairly small amount, like 6% maybe. So, um, and, and the answer turned out to be that there were some people whom I did feel very warmly towards and others whom I absolutely did not. And um, it was the same with the people they, I met. Some of them responded to me and were excited about meeting a Scottish relative and others were, oh, you know, ha- have another beer. Sort of. You know, it, it strikes me a little bit when you're talking about that, about your relatives, that sometimes you might feel that interest or, or that connection, it, it kind of goes back to me to that question. You, you asked me about art and, and why we make art and what it means. And I think connection is another reason. I think to connect with people, even, even if you're a painter and you, you're not there when someone walks by your painting and, you know, as a writer, you're not in the room with people as they're reading. But I think, we do want connection so bad with other human beings and looking for your relatives is one way to seek that connection. And it's probably grounding and finding meaning in your life in some way. But also I think through the pandemic, seeing how much we as humans, like just even in our bodies want to reach for others when we can't, you know, as, as, as it's getting warm out and people want to gather, it's like that need for other people and connection sometimes is stronger than our fear of, of a pandemic. 
or our fear of what we expose in our writing or our painting. I, I do think that going to Australia made me realize that I had missed something in not having a biological family, but I, that I was also unbelievably lucky to have this family I call my adopted family, um, to whom I feel extremely close. And we all get on very well. We have, you know, we we like we like each other and we love each other and we do things together. And I realized that many people, even if they share DNA, do not have that kind of empathy empathy and fun if you will so there was something um yeah there was something very reassuring about going to australia not so much in discovering my family but in realizing what i had known all along which was i already had a family and but i do think some of the of the loneliness of my of my childhood did indeed propel me to want to communicate in the way we communicate in books and the idea of reaching readers is um, I mean I don't think about it while I'm writing but I'm always reading and for me reading is a very intimate experience it's the opposite of escapism in a way it's a way of both going down into myself and going down into another world and so I'm always thrilled when I meet people who, with whom I connect around books, both my own books and book, other books perhaps we've read in common. I wanted to ask you about a line in the very beginning, and this is in the first chapter before you're kind of in point of views of the different characters. So you are in the more omniscient point of view, and this is when they first find Carell in the field. And you're describing the body and he's laying there and he has this blood on his on his legs and they're just kind of looking him over objectively. And you have this line that says everything that happened, they all three later agreed was only possible because of those closed eyelids. And I'm I'm curious about it because it I kept thinking about it throughout the whole book. And they had earlier kind of described his eyelids kind of as being like a little bit translucent, like they felt like they could see maybe the blood vessels beneath it. But I'm wondering if you can share more about that line and and what you were thinking. I suppose I had several. Yes, I had several different thoughts. Um, One was that I had read about Hemingway that Hemingway claimed to have extremely thin eyelids, and he said that when he closed his eyes, he could still uh, see clouds or birds or you know see what was going on around him. And I always found that very fascinating. Um, And then I, I was aware that they were able to have this, Zoe, Matthew and Duncan had this almost meditative moment when they're keeping vigil with with Carol, with the boy in the field. And, but it's only possible because he, he's not he's not in visible pain. He's lying there with his eyes closed, seemingly unconscious. And so they're able to share that moment with him in a way that if he was conscious, they would be 
struggling desperately to do something to make everything better um, rather than just waiting for help. And I, I did feel that that, that moment of, of vigil, as it were, bound all three of them together more deeply and yet also propelled them on their separate on the separate quests we were talking about. Matthews into the idea of evil, the possibility of evil. Um, Zoe's looking, look at trying to find someone to see her and 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 Duncan deciding that he needs to try to find his birth mother. One of the things that struck me as kind of this small, kind of rural English countryside life was that they were working towards this event, maybe it could be called a a fete, I'm not sure, um, called the Salon of Second Chances. Can you share more about that? This is an entirely uh, invented um, idea, but I, there are villages, most of the villages and t- small towns I know in Oxfordshire do have some sort of village occasion, whether it's a, a gardening show or a, or a village fete or a dog show or sometimes a harvest festival or something around Christmas, some, some moment of community. And I decided to to take that and use it use it for my own purposes. Um, and I don't want to talk too much about it become because it comes very late in the in the novel. But I I like the idea of uh, an occasion where all the characters come together. And I think I think party scenes are very appealing. I've always loved a great party scene. I'm thinking of I. Don't don't know Virginia Woolf or James Joyce's *The Dead*, for instance, and I really wanted to to have a party scene in my novel. And what about the second chances? I I think they they could dress up. They could come dressed as maybe someone they wanted to be or someone they admired. Uh, well, I think part of part of the human condition is that we make when new year comes we 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 look forward to uh, to some kind of new beginning to having a sec having a fresh start or however we put it or whether we make new year's resolutions or not and so i i decided to try to if you will embody that idea in the idea of a kind of grown-up version of halloween that you dressed up as someone you would you would like to be <laughs> or would like to have been and um, of course there's also something rather painful in that in that idea in coming as the person you would most like to be so I tried to um, use that as a well a way of, of bringing the novel to a certain kind of climactic place where everyone could encounter could encounter and re-encounter each other in a slightly new configuration. At the end of the story, you do a flash forward eight and a half years. Can you talk about your decision to do that? At one point, I had thought that the um, that the party scene would indeed be the end of the novel. 
and um, then as I kept working, revising it and thinking about it, I felt a, a, a lingering dissatisfaction. I felt there had to be something more. Um, you know, that it was a bit too much like, reader, I married him. And, and of course, nowadays readers are thinking oh but then what, what what was it you know was it a good marriage or you know we have we don't see marriage as the end of the story and i felt like i needed to be able to create a moment that um and again i'm trying not to give anything away that, that paralleled the opening in in a certain way and that allowed us to see the much the novel at the most of the novel cover, covers a few months from September when they find the boy till to December but I wanted to show what what happened in the longer term just very briefly to my four main characters and I took comfort from um, some of the wonderful Alice Munro stories in which she in this dazzling way leaps forward I don't mean that my leap forward is dazzling but it did make me think oh this is something possible it is something that at least someone can do if not me even if not me is there anything else that you want to say about the novel that I didn't ask you about? Well, I would just like to mention that I do have a dog that I'm very attached to um, and who I feel is an important character in the in the novel and um, that when Lily enters the story that she becomes a kind of um, an almost shaman-like figure in in the household and particularly for for Duncan who is who is the one to find her and I, I think one of that comes back to my desire to show both the, the individual lives of my characters, but also um, their communal life and how they do uh, form a family and that family is always changing and evolving. Can you share a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? Yeah, thank you for this question. I chose a passage from um, the late, great Penelope Fitzgerald, a British writer who died in 2000. Uh, she wrote um, nine novels, and this passage is from her novel, The Beginning of Spring, one of her later novels, and it's set in Moscow in 1913. The bear cub at the Kuriatins was disappointingly small, and its head looked rather large for its body and seemed to weigh it down. The skin was very loose, as though the cub had not quite grown into it. The dense fur, dark, golden and ginger, grew at all angles, except along the spine which was neatly parted, and on the glove-like paws and hind feet. The protruding claws looked as if they were made of metal, and the bear itself was a dangerous toy. Both front and back legs were bent in, well, sorry, both front and back legs were bent in an inward curve. The total effect was confused and amateurish, openly in need of protection for some time yet. 
Planting its feet on the ground in a straight line required thought from the bear and was not always successful. When Mitya Kuryatin hit it with a billiard cue, it turned its torpedo-shaped head from side to side and then fell over. Do you want to share more about why you chose that? It was such a, it was needless to say, a very hard choice, Mitzi. But I uh, love Fitzgerald's novels for their economy, their specificity, their wit, and their attitude. And so just the, the opening line, the bear cub at the Kuryatans was disappointingly small. I love what's, what's going on in that phrase, disappointingly small. And I love how the bear looks like a, a dangerous toy two words we don't often put together um, and how the how the point of view both inhabits the bear um, walking in a straight line required some thought um, and is outside the bear and it's one of the things I most admire about Fitzgerald that hovering, shimmering, omniscient point of view. And uh, I don't think any of her novels is longer than 200 pages, and yet they're all very fully peopled and many, many things happen. Can you read a passage that you wrote that maybe was tricky or hard or changed from the first draft? I can, and I chose a passage that um, uh, talks about uh, Duncan, Duncan who's 13 years old and who is uh, trying to find a new dog for the family. On Sunday, they drove to the animal rescue. Duncan had imagined it like an orphanage, barred windows, the dogs thin and miserable, the air rancid. But as soon as they came into the clean, bright room, he could tell the animals were well treated. Cats to the left, dogs to the right. Each was in its own pen behind a grill, with a bed and toys and food and water. Each had a biography. Charlie Boy likes children over five and regular walks. Rita has retired from greyhound racing. She needs a large garden and a stable home. Max gets nervous if people stare at him, but is friendly. Almost all the dogs came over to smile at Duncan. Most of them stood on their hind legs. If only he could pat them, but every few yards there were signs about not touching. He walked around the U-shaped corridor, stopping at each pen and back again. He wanted the lurcher, he wanted the terrier, he wanted the spaniel and the beagle. It would be awful to choose one and leave the others behind. Do you want to say more about that? Well, this was a hard passage to write or in several ways and underwent several dramatic shifts. Um, when I first thought about Duncan going to the animal rescue, I had I had myself pictured it like an orphanage. 
you know, that I would see these pitiful, shivering animals. And um, when I got there, I was pleasantly surprised at um, how lovely it seemed and how well treated the animals were and how um, lovely the attendants were with the animals. Um, and then, of course, the great challenge, and that was where I turned back to Penelope Fitzgerald, was was to select my details. I mean, this passage um, was distilled out of maybe three pages describing in lavish detail um, every aspect of, of, the, of the dog's home and, um, you know, the occupants of each, of each enclosure and uh, Duncan's thoughts about the dogs and what he said to each of them. And um, finally, I, I realized that I actually could maybe show what I really needed to show, that it was an extremely difficult choice for him in, in a much more economical way. Where do you write? I write principally in three places. I have what I call a writing room um, in uh, the house that I live in in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Um, I Every year in Iowa City, where I teach at the Writer's Workshop, I uh, rent a house and I have a, a lovely desk there at an upstairs room. And I have um, a flat in London um, that I, uh, I've had for many, many years. I uh, saved up my waitressing money in my 20s to make a down payment. And I have a room there where I've been writing very happily for many, many years. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? In in the olden days, I um, would go to the gym <laughs> um, with, with great pleasure. Um, uh, nowadays, I... Uh, Take take walks, and um, I watch um, productions from the National Theatre in London and the Metropolitan Opera in New York, and I weed my garden, which is almost which is almost always right on the edge of being out of control. And I, you mentioned this before um, about who do you show your work to first to get feedback. I have a, a cherished first reader, the wonderful, wonderful writer Andrea Barrett, the author of Ship Fever and The Air We Breathe and most recently Archangel. And um, we met at the Breadloaf Writers' Conference. I think we decided we met in 1990, although I'm not sure if that's quite right. And we very cautiously tiptoed into friendship and into exchanging our work. For the first couple of years, we were probably extremely polite with each other. And gradually, we made our way to being, I think, much more useful readers for each other's work. And um, basically, she reads almost anything longer than a postcard that I write. How have you dealt with rejection? Oh, rejection. Um, it's so much part of a writer's life or an artist's life, and it is such a, a painful part of a writer's life. Um, I, I would say, like most people, I find it very difficult. Um, 
I do try to, I do try to sort of take myself out of it, if and to think it's the work that's being rejected, not me. But my first powerful feeling, of course, is that I am being rejected, because the writing is such an intimate part of me, and I do try to find rejections useful. Um, Years ago, for instance, I sent a, a long story to uh, Salma Gundy, the magazine Salma Gundy, and Robert Boyers, who edits the magazine, wrote back and said, um, I just don't think this story is finished. And at first I was downcast, but as I thought more about it, I thought, you know, he's absolutely right. But there's no way for me to finish this story within the bounds of a, a short story. And that propelled me into writing The House on Fortune Street, um, a novel I published in, I don't know, I think maybe 2009 or 10. Um, so I try to think, well, what is not working for this reader? But I will also say that for seven years, I was the fiction editor for Plowshares magazine. And so I was myself in the position of delivering many, many rejections. And I was often aware that those rejections were matters of taste, that the work would speak to another writer but was not speaking to me and I was hoping the author would find that would find that reader and what is your favorite word my favorite word is taxi because I see it as full of promise and I love how the x in taxi suggests that you're at a crossroads and could go in several directions and arrive somewhere wonderful well, thank you so much. And I should have told you this at the very beginning, but ding, 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 you are my 300th interview. I feel like I should give you a washer and dryer. <laughs> Mitzi, I am unbelievably thrilled. This is a red letter day, your 300th interview. I did look at the very, very long list, and but couldn't quite count up how many people were on it. So I feel I was honored before, but now I feel extra honored. Thank you. And thank you for these wonderful, thoughtful, thought-provoking questions. And um, one of the best things ab ab about this hour has been your, your saying things and asking things that make me think all over again about why we write and what we're trying to get on the page. So thank you for your profound attention. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing. My guest was Margot Livesey, author of The Boy in the Field. If you like today's show, check out my interview with John McGregor, whose novel Reservoir 13 focuses on the residents of an English village who spend more than a decade searching for a missing girl. You can find that interview and the entire First Draft archive of more than 290 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips from my guests, books, and more. 
The first tier of support is just $6 a month, so please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.